You're listening to Friendly Connections, the podcast of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. I'm Chase Maxwell. Today we're bringing you a talk from our Untold Stories Labor History series, now in its 18th season. In celebration of Labor History Month each May, the Untold Stories series presents programs and talks on both local and national labor history topics. Past programs in the series have featured historian Robin D.G. Kelly, singer Larry Long, author Sherry Register, and walking tours by local historian David Reilly. The series received the 2003 John Sessions Memorial Award from the American Library Association for service to the labor community. The Iron Range has always held a special place in Minnesota's labor history and lore. Now the future of the range seems uncertain. Today we bring you a conversation between two authors whose recent books give us a great opportunity to grapple with the connections between the past, present, and future of the Iron Range. Megan Marzenich is the author of the novel Underground, which centers around the roles of women in the miners' strike of 1916. She teaches high school in Minneapolis. Marznick is joined by Jeffrey Manuel, Associate Professor of Historical Studies at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville, and author of Taconite Dreams, The Struggle to Sustain Mining on Minnesota's Iron Range, 1915 to 2000. Occasionally, you'll hear the voice of Dr. Peter Ratcliffe. Ratcliffe is a professor of history at McAllister College, where he has taught for 31 years. He's also the president and treasurer of the board for the Eastside Freedom Library, and a longtime member of our Untold Stories planning committee. Untold Stories is co-sponsored by the Minnesota Association of Professional Employees, or MAPE. And now, Megan Marznick and Jeffrey Manuel. Thank you very much for coming. Shelby's here, Shelby Setnicker. She lived uh, one link away from me, canoeing distance up on the Iron Range. And the last time I saw her, she actually accompanied me on the button box. We did <laughs> some sections of the book that had songs, so that was really nice. And also I saw John Sackelch is here, and he actually checked my Slovenian in, in my book, although all the mistakes are mine, <laughs> not his. I thought I would read a little bit today a, a scene earlier in the book when I decided that I was going to write a book that was set on the Iron Range and I started doing some research in, into the, the history of the area. Obviously, the labor strikes came to the forefront. And so I did a lot of research into the 1907 strike uh, where Mother Jones was present helping to organize the Iron Range workers. But eventually I settled on the 1916 strike because I was just riveted by it. And there were more women on the Iron Range in 1916 than 1907. So when I was looking at the role that women played in labor history, the 1916 strike really stood out to me because the women were so active in the strike. This series is called Untold Stories. And although I read dozens of books and fabulous, many fabulous articles on the, the labor strike, it, you don't see a lot on the women. And so that was something that I, I really wanted to do is, is imagine what would it be like to be a woman during this strike. They weren't working in the mines, but they were still working. 
And I tried to imagine the strike from their perspective. And luckily, the newspapers were really prolific in quoting women. So there were all kinds of women's stories that I was able to find. And there are also a large number of really intelligent Iron Range women writers who wrote about the women of the Iron Range. So I was able to find those through various historical societies. So one of the things that surprised me the most when I started doing the research were the firsthand accounts by the miners. And I think the one that first, there were like lots that really like made me, took my breath away, but was this account by several miners that said when the company got word that people were trying to organize, they would roll boulders down the shafts and they would maim or kill whoever was on the crew. So the people who worked in the mines, there were all kinds of um, union activists, but they had to be very discreet about it. They had to be, be secret. And so a lot of my book takes place in the bars. It was so funny the other day, somebody said, why are there so many bars on the Iron Range? And I said, because they started out as language centers. People wanted to get together with people who spoke their language. And so you would have a Slovenian bar and you would have a Finnish bar. And so you ended up having all of these bars. It wasn't that they have more alcoholism than anywhere else in the state. They just had more languages <laughs> for that time period. So anyway, um, this idea of the violence that occurred prior to the 1916 strike uh, was important to me. And usually when you hear about the strike, you hear about what happened in, in the 1916 strike. When I gave a reading in Biwabic, people were getting to their feet and telling me all kinds of stories about what had happened, things I didn't even know about. And it was horrifically violent. But it was violent prior to the strike. It was the violence that in, inspired the strike. And I think after all of my research, the miners actually exercised great reticence under some, some fairly difficult conditions. So this is an early scene. This is before the strike, it's short, but it's talking about something that was very common and I'll tell you where I got the ending for this in just a second. When the accident whistle blew, all Iron Rangers within hearing distance froze, holding their breath for only as long as it took to recognize the deafening sound. Soon the church bells began to toll their solemn chime carried fear and despair to the far reaches of town, past the mine locations to those who could not hear the whistle. The women ran to the mine, dragging small children behind them. The schoolteacher tried to keep the children inside, attempting to block the exit with her body, but she could not. Finally, she too walked slowly toward the mine. When she arrived, Katka and Lily were already there. The townsfolk watched as the body of a Latvian miner was carried out and laid gingerly on the hard red ground. Next, the limp body of an Italian worker was brought up. Both were dead. Two other men, panting, muddy and sopping wet, followed closely behind. A murmur, like a ground vibration, flowed from the front of the crowd to the back. The names of the victims floated on the vibration. As the names were recognized, women sighed unconsciously with relief. Not mine, they thought. My husband, my brother, my cousin, 
My papa, he is safe. The Latvian was unmarried, alone, with no family here to mourn his passing. The Italian had a brother who worked at the Sparta mine a few miles away. The foreman appeared and glanced at the dead bodies. He addressed the two men who had surfaced alive. Dead, he asked. I told you that ceiling weren't safe, one of the two survivors shouted. His entire body was caked with slick mud. A woman handed him a handkerchief and he wiped his face. The foreman tried to calm him down. Nobody is more sorry about this than me, he said. Horrible accident. And he did look sorry, Katka thought. The other miners were slowly coming out of the mine. Some had come up the cage. Others had crawled up the tunnels via ladders. Accident it weren't, the Finn said calmly. Bloody murder it is. I tell you, and I tell you, the ceiling is leaking water. I tell you yesterday, I tell you this morning. He watched as the crowd gathered, holding a collective breath of anger and despair. The survivor began to scream, I say, not safe, not safe, not safe. Do he care? He don't give a damn. The men and the women in the crowd encouraged him. You tell him, Eno, somebody yelled. Now two good men are dead, and Sam and me, barely alive we are. I told you there'd be a mud run, but you don't listen. There's blood on your hands. The foreman's face went ashen. The men began to advance toward him. As they stepped forward, the miners began to chant, murder, murder, murder. Some of the miners were clutching their pickaxes. Others bent down, grabbed some rocks, and continued walking toward the foreman. Murder, murder. Oh God, the school teacher said to Lily and Katka. A lynching. We have to get the children out of here. Katka made a move to help, but Lily clutched her arm. Let them watch, Lily said. Let them see how brave their papas are. There's nothing brave about a mob, are you mad? Many of the children had found their mothers anyway among the crowd. The mothers and children took up the chant, murder, murder. Someone threw a rock at the foreman. It hit him hard on the forehead and he lurched back but did not fall. I didn't do nothing, he yelled. I was just following orders. Murderer. Another rock landed squarely on his jaw and blood seeped slowly out of his mouth. We should stop this, Katka said. That man didn't do anything. Exactly, Lily said. He didn't do anything. Don't you fathom it, Katka? They care more about the dollar than the lives of those two men. It has to change. A small child threw another rock and missed. Within seconds, rocks were being hurled from all directions. The miners were throwing rocks, the women, the children. The foreman fell to his knees just as rifle shots rang out. Katka and Lily backed up. They saw eight men approach on horseback. The man in front fired his rifle into the air. They galloped quickly to the side of the foreman. One of the managers dismounted and grabbed the wounded foreman, hoisting him onto his horse. 
The rest of the managers spread out, pointing their rifles at the crowd. Following closely behind was Sheriff Turner. When Sheriff Turner arrived, Mr. Augustine Stone walked out of the company office. He was one of three owners of the Oliver Mining Company. The miners rarely saw him in the flesh. Some of the men in the back of the crowd began to boo him. Hush, Mr. Stone said. Who started this? The foreman pointed at Eno. The men started screaming at him. They swore in 30 languages. Sheriff, Stone said, arrest this man for inciting a riot. He pointed to Eno. Yes, sir, Sheriff Turner said. He pulled out his handcuffs. He ain't the murderer, a miner yelled. And as for the rest of you, I suggest you get back to work. Accidents happen. It's unfortunate. Perhaps in the future you will exercise the safety precautions we have spelled out clearly for all of you. Safety first, that's our motto. Now go. You're not getting paid for standing out here. Murder, murder, the crowd was more vocal now. Stone looked up at the men on horseback and exchanged some words with the manager who was closest to him. The guard took aim and fired into the chanting miners. A man fell to the ground, screaming. He was shot in the chest. Avi Nurmi wailed and ran to her husband's side. Oh God, oh God. The crowd grew silent as Avi's cries rose. Her children were there now. Lily and Katka could clearly hear her son speaking to their father in Finnish. Don't die, Papa. Papa, don't die. Anyone else? Stone asked. Women gathered around Avi Nurmi. Shh, now, the doctor will come. The doctor will come. He's dying, she said in Finnish. Don't die, Hans. The Finnish women began to sing the Finnish prayer for the dead. The men put down their rocks and took off their hats. Some of the men sang, too, as if the calming rhythm of their voices could somehow make the bullet that had torn through Hans Nermi's chest disappear. In the midst of the song, the doctor arrived with the undertaker in a wagon. The doctor was directed to Hans Nermi, whose blood had formed a small lake around his body. The doctor took his pulse, ripped away his clothing to reveal the wound, and shook his head. I'll do my best, ma'am, he said. Then to some men standing nearby, load them all up. Hans Nermi was placed in the buggy with the two dead bodies. His wife, Avi, crawled in next to him. Her boys would have to run behind. The undertaker took the reins while the doctor sat with Hans. As the buggy pulled away, Mr. Augustine Stone picked up the megaphone. Nothing to be done. Back to work. The wind kicked up some red dust. It was October and the breeze was cold. Back to work, I said. If you want a job tomorrow, you go back to work now. A few miners picked up their shovels. Slowly, others followed suit. One by one, they headed for the cage. They descended from the despair of the afternoon into the darkness of the mine. They did as they always did after the whistle blew. They went back to work. Except, of course, for the two dead miners who were hauled off to the coroner 
and Eno, who went to jail, and Mr. Hans Nermi, who went to the doctor's office where he was treated unsuccessfully for a gunshot wound. The Oliver Mining Company would pay for the funerals of the Latvian and the Italian man. Eno was let go. The Italian's brother would receive a small settlement check, but Avi Nermi and her sons were on their own. The company log recorded Hans's death as suicide on company grounds. So the impetus for that chapter was me working at what is now called the Discovery Center, but was the Iron Range Research Center when I was there. And I kept coming across these records that said suicide on company grounds, suicide on company grounds. And I thought, surely there can't be this many suicides on company grounds. So I started doing some of that research. And, and it was important to me because when you research the 1916 strike, what, what you don't see is a lot of this stuff that led up to it. What was it that put these miners to this point where they were willing to sacrifice so much, and it's because of these suicides on company grounds. Boy, is that a tough act to follow. So thanks everyone for coming out. It's wonderful to be back in Minnesota, my home. I live in the St. Louis area now, but uh, it's just a real pleasure to be back. I was thinking, uh, to follow up on that, it was a little unfair to pair an academic historian like myself with a fiction writer like Megan. Her book, I mean, that, that, that scene sort of distills a lot of what's so great about that book. And it also has romance and these heroic strikers and things like that. And in contrast, my book has an entire chapter on the history of mineral taxation law. Um, so <laughs> it's a, a tough act. Well, I mean, I really try hard. I try, like, what's the narrative hook here? Um, I actually love that chapter. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So uh, let me just briefly say a little bit about what my book is about, what led me to this t research topic, and then I'll read a little bit about it. And it's wonderful, I think, uh, the pairing I really enjoyed because, you know, my book really starts in some ways in the, the, the aftermath of this progressive era of mining and takes, tries to take the story of the Iron Range and its mining industry right up to, well, really right up to the present. At the broadest level, Taconite Dreams is a book about the history of the modern Iron Range. The history of the Iron Range in the 20th century, really heavily focused on the era from the 1930s and 1940s, and then especially in the post-World War II era, right up to the present, as I'd mentioned. And the real key to that story, to that history, that I found in my research was the struggle to keep the iron ore mining industry alive and vibrant during that time period when it faced a whole variety of challenges from globalization, automation, technological change in the steel industry, things like that. And the struggle among the people of the Iron Range and the communities where they lived to figure out what the future was gonna look like in this rapidly changing economy and a rapidly changing mining industry. So there's really five parts to that story of the struggle to keep, to the struggle, what I call the struggle to sustain mining on the modern iron range. And the first was the creation of the taconite process, this tremendous shift from so-called direct shipping or high-grade iron ores to the low-grade taconite ore, which is what's mined today, is really fundamental to understanding the modern iron range. I tried to go into sort of the technological change that happened there and then some of these really fascinating unintended consequences that happens once the Iron Range shifted to that. 
Part two is a whole set of changes to tax laws to make iron ore mining uh, or taconite mining viable and economically feasible that I argue sort of open up the door to the world we live in today of just tremendous tax breaks and incentive policies and things like that to help the industry in a variety of ways we first sort of saw come on the scene around the, uh, the middle of the 20th century with taconite. Part three really focuses on perhaps the biggest unintended consequence of taconite mining, which is pollution. And this, of course, is very much brings us to some of the current debates around the fate of mining in the 21st century. But it's really with taconite and into the 1960s and 1970s, because of taconite and because of changing ideas about ecology and landscape, question of the environmental consequences of mining first kind of come on the scene and become sort of central to, to the debates about mining today. The fourth part of that story is about economic development policy efforts to use politics or to sort of use the levers of public policy to try to diversify the Iron Range's economy away from being just sort of a one industry region to find other industries that it could rely on and the deep challenges that the region like many other rural regions uh, tied to resource extraction industries have faced in trying to diversify their economies. The recent debate about the Iron Range Resources and Rehabilitation Board, which is happening right now, is tied into a lot of this stuff. So it's a sign, I think, that in many ways we still are dealing with some of these complicated challenges. And then the fifth part of that is on what I call heritage. The question of how should iron ore mining be remembered on the Iron Range as it is Many of the mines have shut down and the, re and the uh, industry has changed. People have left, People, there's far fewer miners. How should that era of industry be remembered on the Iron Range? What is sort of the memory of it? And what role does that memory play in shaping the future of the Iron Range? So that's really what I tried to get at in the book as a whole. And let me just quickly mention what led me to this topic. I, as a historian, I've always been really fascinated by a central question about how economic changes that happened in the late 20th century um, have affected individuals, individuals, families, and communities. And one of the most important of these economic changes is this large process called deindustrialization, the shutdown of heavy industry, closure of factories, mines, and mills, the global restructuring of industry and global outsourcing and the global assembly line that we have today. So I've always been interested in this question. When I was an undergraduate student in Chicago, a wise professor realized that I was interested in this and sent me to Youngstown, Ohio. He said, hey, if you're interested in this question, just go to Youngstown, Ohio and, I don't know, ask people some questions or something. And I went to Youngstown, Ohio and worked with the Center for Working Class Studies that was there at Youngstown State University for a while. And if you've ever been to Youngstown, it's a fascinating place because it's sort of a, a, really the heart of the Rust Belt. Uh, steel industry town, sort of at the other end of the steel of the commodity chain for steel making, uh, centered around several massive steel mills that all close within you know a period of about two years in the late 1970s, and the town was just devastated. Today, even today, Youngstown has some of the highest concentrations of poverty of any uh, city in the United States. And so that really cued me in that this is just this tremendously important change that's happened in American life in the late 20th century that is so central to how we live today and uh, politics and culture. And it's still, I think, very poorly understood by many people, even for some of the people who've lived through it. So when I came back to the University of Minnesota to get my PhD, I knew that I kind of wanted to, to think about this story of deindustrialization and the challenges that industrial towns and industrial regions faced in the late 20th century. And looking around for a local example, that brought me to the Iron Range, sort of at the beginning of those commodity chains for the steel industry. 
And I was happy to, I mean, in the way, as a historian, you're always happy when there's sort of something that hasn't been, that isn't well done, because you can try and stake a flag there. And that the, I found that the, modern, the story of the modern Iron Range had not quite been told yet. We know quite a bit about early sort of so-called pioneering period of the Iron Range, when it was discovered and first exploited. The more recent pro, uh, challenges of the Iron Range since the 1980s or so have been pretty well documented by journalists. And, but that era between, you know, say World War II and the 1980s, I found to be sort of an interesting uh, spot where there wasn't a great deal uh, that had already been written about it. So that's where I started my research that then expanded out into the book Taconite Dreams. That's kind of a circuitous route that led me to the Iron Range. I'm not a native Iron Ranger, and I don't pretend to be, but it's been a place that I, I've, I've just grown to have a deep respect for, and at the very least, I think it's really crucial for everyone. I, you know, I'm always surprised by the number of Minnesotans who've never been to the Iron Range or don't know a great deal about it, which is a real shame, in my opinion, because it's both central to Minnesota's history and the nation's history in some really interesting ways. So let me just read two brief passages from the book. I want to read one passage that just gives you sort of an overview of the book, and then I want to jump into some present debates, because our title tonight was The Iron Range, uh, Past, Present, and Future. Uh, and so I'll jump to the end to a little bit of what I'd written uh, about the present and perhaps future of the Iron Range. But let me start with just sort of a quick overview. This book describes a century of efforts to prevent decline and deindustrialization on Minnesota's Iron Range working in industrial research laboratories, the state legislature, economic development offices, and even history museums, Iron Range residents waged a war against obsolescence in the 20th century. In this battle, they were caught between two conflicting beliefs about themselves and the region they called home. On the one hand, many were certain that the Iron Range, the steel industry it was part of, and the national industrial economy they contributed to were essential to the modern United States. It was impossible to imagine a modernizing America, they thought, standing astride the globe by the middle of the 20th century without their essential backbone of industrial labor, raw steel, and the tough towns where things were made. This vision imagined a vital, modern nation built on the labor and production of a patriotic working class. On the other hand, many residents acknowledged that the economics of the global steel industry did not bode well for their region. Many understood the realities of new foreign ore fields that were twice as rich as theirs, worked by miners, paid half as much. They also saw a political culture moving quickly to distance itself from the gritty blue-collar steel and mining towns. Thus, Iron Range residents faced the hard realities of globalization and marginalization throughout the late 20th century. The tension between these two magnetic poles, one honoring blue-collar communities as central to the modern United States, and the other offering an increasingly small range of depressing options in the face of global competition and post-industrial culture is crucial to understanding the history of the modern Iron Range and America's industrial heartland. The Iron Range's history in the second half of the 20th century was driven by the challenges of industrial decline and residents' stubborn efforts to fight against it, using all available tools. Widely considered the globe's richest and most productive iron ore mining district at the beginning of the century, the Iron Range struggled with the challenges of mineral depletion, rising global competition, population loss, and cultural displacement throughout the 20th century. At no point, though, did residents give up and accept decline. The fight against it took many forms over the decades, but it was animated by a stubborn refusal to accept that the region would devolve into a string of mining ghost towns. So let me now jump ahead to the very end of the book, and along this theme of my Iron Range 
present and perhaps future, I want to just touch a little bit on perhaps what I see as the most central current controversy or debate about the Iron Range and frankly the fate of much of northeastern Minnesota, and that centers on potential new mining ventures, uh, especially the copper, so-called copper nickel or sulfide mines. And what I have to say here is beyond the taconite industry, the early 21st century on Minnesota's Iron Range and throughout the entire Lake Superior region saw contentious debates over new mining ventures, including new copper nickel mines that raised old questions about the benefits and costs of sustaining the region's mining economy. As of this writing, many of these proposed mines are waiting for environmental permits and financing packages that may or may not materialize. And the ever-volatile global commodities markets could certainly upend plans as they did several times in the Iron Range's history. Yet what is striking about the debate over proposed new mines in the Lake Superior region is how they echo old arguments, such as Edward W. Davis's promotion of taconite as a technological savior for the Iron Range's beleaguered economy in the 1950s, or worries that reserve mining companies' pollution of Lake Superior would have catastrophic consequences on human life. And I go on to sort of document some of the, very, the major players and, and ventures that have been raised over the past few years. Then I wrap up by saying, what lessons might history hold for the future of these proposed mines on the Iron Range? It's impossible to accurately predict whether or how these proposed business ventures will come to life much less how they will or will not affect jobs and the environment in the region. The past century of mining on the Iron Range, however, does hold lessons that both proponents and opponents of the new mining projects would do well to heed. First, new mining was never the panacea that its supporters claimed, nor did it lead to the utter devastation that critics warned of. As described in Chapter 1, Edward W. Davis and his political allies imagined a rich and thriving Iron Range if taconite mining was adopted. A half century after the Iron Range's iron ore mines switched to taconite, it is abundantly clear that taconite did not solve all of the region's economic woes. A brief construction boom in the late 1960s and early 1970s was quickly undercut by the shutdowns and cutbacks of the 1980s and early 2000s. Despite promises that taconite technology would cleanly and efficiently solve the Iron Range's problems, the truth is that the region's fate was, and will be, determined by the far messier realities of global economics and politics. But it is also important to remember that taconite never fulfilled the apocalyptic rhetoric of some opponents, who worried that it would destroy the region's ecosystem. Taconite tailings hardly proved to be the, quote, number one ecological disaster of our time, as Judge Miles Lord worried during the reserve mining trial. Just as taconite was neither a cure-all nor a disaster, so too are new mines likely to have a mixed and complicated outcome. Second, any new mining ventures, especially those involving new minerals, will certainly lead to a host of unexpected and perhaps unwanted consequences. Much of the debate over the environmental consequences of proposed copper-nickel mining in northeast Minnesota has gone back and forth between environmental groups worried about pollution and mining supporters who claim that modern mining can prevent the environmental abuses of the past. Supporters of proposed new mines argue that they will use the latest technology, such as reverse osmosis water treatment or extensive liners, to prevent pollution. Yet it is worth remembering that Reserve Mining Company also proposed to use the latest technology available at the time, directly pumping tailings into Lake Superior based on the prevalent theory that the secret to pollution is dilution, to prevent pollution. It is only with hindsight that the error of this approach became clear. Similarly, the problems arising from new copper-nickel mines are unlikely to be easily predicted and thus able to be ameliorated ahead of time. 
It is the unforeseen consequences that are more worrying, those problems that cannot be known or foreseen precisely because they can only appear as the result of complex chains of causality. Hubris that the problems of mining and pollution have been overcome by new technology is almost as old as mining and just as likely to be proven wrong in the long run. We've reached one of the best parts of the podcast, the Q&A. In this episode, we change format a bit. Before we get to the audience questions, Marsnik and Manuel have both prepared questions to ask about each other's books. Well, I was going to have you give a prediction as to what was going to happen next on the Iron Range. But the question that I actually, I figured you would address that, which you did in your final reading. The question that I had for you was, in your research, which is fascinating to me, having done four years of it, was there anything that particularly surprised you in your research? Yeah, that's a great question. In some ways, more, more things than I, um, than I can easily recount. But the biggest of these, really, I think, is the story of Taconite. It's discovery, it's exploitation, and it's sort of the unforeseen consequences that sprang from it. You know, I really did not set out to become a historian of technology. Uh, if you had told me at the start of this that a lot of what you will do is dive into the records of mining engineers and things like that, I would have walked the other direction very quickly. But the more I got into it, I just found that this really was absolutely central to understanding the post-World War II history of the Iron Range, this story of taconite. And in particular, that the story you hear most often about the transition to taconite on the Iron Range has been this sort of Cinderella story that the old direct shipping, direct shipping ores were running out, they were overexploited during World War I and World War II especially, and then thank goodness this kind man, Edward W. Davis, had developed this thing in his lab where they could use the, tac the abundant taconite ore to change the industry, and voila, the Iron Range was saved. And that story is just it has a kernel of truth to it, but it's far, far too simple. The more you dive into it, you find Edward W. Davis and others working as early as 1915 to develop the taconite process, you know, changing tax laws, changing his laboratory, doing all kinds of stuff to, to make taconite, a to change it basically from a worthless form of low-grade rock to valuable iron ore. And then even after he's done all this work, he finds the steel industries don't care. They are not interested. They simply say, well, you know, hey, when the, when the Masabi runs out, we've got mountains of high-grade ore in Venezuela, in West Africa. We'll get it there. Um, and then they continue on to sort of, you know, find the technological advantage of it as well. So I think that, for me, was really the biggest surprise that I found. And, and I think it speaks to this question of, when we think about industry as a whole, just how complicated it's been and this change, that change, which is a story that's told one way, just is a lot more complicated than that in terms of the different interests that are involved in some of these things that sort of seem inevitable to us when you look at something like a big mine in the ground or these pollution questions, the sort of natural element seems very inevitable. And I found in my research that it was anything but inevitable, right? You found all these power interests and politics behind the scenes. So that was very interesting to me and probably the biggest surprise. If you haven't read Taconite Dreams, it's a good read. One of the things that intrigued me most about your book was how you explored the juxtaposition between the very liberal politics and environmental concerns, because oftentimes those are, are seen as very polar opposites. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I found your book very enlightening on that issue. So if, if that concerns anyone, it definitely was, is a thought that I think about a lot. 
the liberal politics, the liberal DFL politics, and and, and the environmental issues. How 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 are those married? How how do they intersect? How did it happen? And your research on the history of the legislation involved in tax cuts for the corporations was some of the best that that I have seen. So I I just I'm going to give a shout out to Taconite Dreams just for exploring something very difficult and, and not jumping necessarily on one side or the other, but looking at, looking at it. Thank you very much. So here's my question. Historians have recently argued, there's been a, a big debate among historians recently, saying that the situation facing workers in the United States today has a lot of similarities to the situation workers faced in the progressive era, which you have documented in such dramatic and compelling form in the book. So I would just be really interested in hearing your thoughts about what lessons from 1916, or really this whole sort of early era, 1907, 1916, in that whole era, what lessons from that era do you think are applicable to the Iron Range today? We do have a historian here, Peter, who probably knows what the, the rate of unionization is today. It, my guess would be like 12%, do you know? Less, less. Less, less than 10%. Okay, less than 10%, so my, my dad is a little uh, old. So we've got less than 10% of our workforce unionized at this time. And I find that incredibly frightening. When I looked back and did this research into that era that you're talking about, this is, I mean, obviously there was unionization going on for a, a long time prior to this, but on the Iron Range, this was just kind of kind of the beginnings of this. And although situations were never ideal, they were so much better because of the union. Living conditions were so much better. That, that scene that I read where, where Avi Nurmi is left at the end with three children and no means of getting food for her family. I mean, there's no pension. There's, what, what does she do? after that. I think over time people have forgotten, they, they take for granted the gains that were made by the union because you have them so you don't have to think about them. We don't think about things that we have like a weekend off. So I think the value, the lessons from studying this era is to remind ourselves what it was like prior to the unions. And people will say, we don't need a union. I'm not in a union. I work for Target Corporation. I get more days off than you that's in a union. I'm fine. I, I'm treated great. Yes, you are. You are treated great because there were union brothers and sisters who made tons of sacrifices so that the wages would go up and people would be guaranteed healthcare, and you would be able to retire, period, instead of die in your job, which is what the Iron Rangers were doing. That you work until you die. And there is this disconnect today that, that people think that what happened in the beginning stages of the union does not matter today. And that to me is the greatest lesson of going back and looking at our history. Even Iron Rangers, and I have a feeling there are some in this crowd, because my crowds are always a little more raucous when there's some Iron Rangers in the crowd. <laughs> Even some Iron Rangers, my generation,
started to lose this, this sense that the unions matter. And we're a labor stronghold. I mean, we got Dayton elected. We did this. But people are forgetting because you're comfortable. I, re I remember when I first started writing this book, it was a poem. It's a long poem. It was called Old Miner Speaks of Unions. And it had 10 parts. And one of the parts came from my dad. And it was this old man, I mean, speaking. And he said, yeah, we had lakes, but we didn't fish. We worked. And, and that struck me so strongly. I mean, just surrounded by all these beautiful lakes. But they were working all the time. Now you get a weekend off. It wasn't always like that. So that is the lesson. That is why I think learning labor history is important. I would like to see a unionization increase. I would like to see respect for union workers increase. I think it would make li the living conditions for Americans overall better. Now we turn to the audience at Arlington Hills Community Center in St. Paul on Tuesday, May 17th, 2016. To make it easier for you, the listener, I've summarized their questions and we'll read them. The first question is for Manuel. Can he discuss the history of economic development efforts on the range and the various successes or failures he's encountered in his research? Yeah, uh, so in chapter four of the book, I talk about specifically the what today is the Iron Range Resources and Rehabilitation Board as the central agency that's struggled, that, that's been challenged to deal with economic development on the Iron Range. And the basic conclusion I have is that it's really hard to do. Uh, and it's really hard to do given the tools that are available there, you know, to sort of hand to this one agency challenge of saying, hey, fundamentally restructure the economy of this region. You know, we shouldn't be surprised that it's going to only be successful around the margins for that. What I argue in the book is that there was this very interesting moment in the late 50s and early 1960s when this was tackled at kind of a, a nationwide level through the uh, so-called ARA or Area Redevelopment Administration, largely forgotten about today, but this was a nationwide push under the Kennedy administration that kind of gets then cut off pretty immediately under Johnson to realize that, hey, there are certain pockets of the United States, certain regions that are not participating in the widespread prosperity of that era, and they needed some additional help. So those areas needed help because, you know, they, were, they just weren't sort of benefiting for whatever reason. So Appalachia, the Lake Superior Iron Ore Mining District, some parts of the rural Southwest, places like that. And it really was tackled at a national level to say, hey, you know, these parts of the country that are really benefiting from the new post-war economy, they need to take a little bit of their success and spread it around so that it can be a little more even. That was a path not taken. I argue that in many ways, you know, that if, the, if those uneven regional issues were going to be dealt with, it was going to be dealt with there. But that was a path not taken, so it falls back on sort of state or even local level agencies that only have pretty limited tools available. So, you know, I try hard to not pile on some of the classic stories of like, oh, the chopsticks factory that they tried, things like that. You know, and to portray that like in the midst of the tremendous steel crisis of the 1980s when the region is desperate for any kind of jobs and any kind of investment, like that's actually a pretty logical choice to make. So, you know, that by, by putting this down to the state and even the local level, there's only so much that can be done. And that said, I mean, I think the, on the Iron Range has actually done a better job than many other regions nationwide. I mean, one of the things I really try to do in the book is to put the Iron Range experience into the context of other regions like it. And there's not, not exactly apples to apples, 
but to say to compare to experiences in, in many parts of Appalachia or the western mining regions, places like that, how have they done? And to my mind, you know, the Iron Range has done not a perfect job, but a better job than many regions of dealing with some of these challenges. Does Marsnick think the Discovery Center in Chisholm, Minnesota can become financially sustainable? I don't know why more people don't go there. I think it is a, a, a beautiful, wonderful place. It, if it's not being marketed for the way that it should be, that's a possibility. But I mean, that place is unbelievably awesome. It, it does seem like uh, there are fewer people now than there were in the 80s when I worked there. But of course, there are also fewer people on the Iron Range there. I know they are doing, I just got an email to do a reading up there. They're going to celebrate the centennial of the 1916 strike, which would be June 2nd. So they're, I know they're going to do a big celebration commemorating the strikers and their sacrifices that they made. I hope that it survives. I. I don't have the answer to that, but I, I think that's one of my favorite places in the entire world. Plus, on my lunch break, I used to leave with my friends and we would go cliff jumping and then we'd come back with wet hair. <laughs> <laughs> so I have really good memories of working there. Can I just jump in and say that I, uh, you know, in the chapter five of the book, I sort of go into the history of, you know, everyone, it's always called Iron World, uh, as I understand it. Um, so it'll sort of always be Iron World to me. But, uh, you know, my argument is that I think it essentially, I agree with you, it was sort of overbuilt, or as I would put it, you know, it essentially was asked to sort of serve competing masters. It was set up to fail in many ways from the beginning. That is asked to sort of accurately maintain the region's history and heritage, which it does a good job of, I think, but also then be this tremendous draw for tourists and make a lot of money and become a hub for kind of post-industrial development in, on the Iron Range. And these two are sort of fundamentally opposed things. Uh, so, you know, right from the minute it was born, it was set up to fail in some ways. So it shouldn't be a surprise that, you know, it's always been sort of under this dark cloud of like, you know, the uh, attendance figures has never met those. It's never generated. It's always sort of run in the red in different ways. I believe it's now actually spun off as a nonprofit. It's no longer under the IRRRB, I think. I'll sort of pull out the standards historian card and say, you know, I, don't, I can't predict the future, I don't know. But I do think that one of the things that's so interesting is that it's not, you know, there's a lot of taconite. You could, you know, it's not a matter of, of running out natural resources, it's a matter of the economics and the politics of it. As, as the other gentleman pointed out, that, you know, it just like was the case with the direct shipping or it wasn't the case that the direct shipping or ran out, it was the case that the steel industries realized it was a lot cheaper and more efficient to utilize something else and suddenly the market for the direct shipping ore dried up very, very quickly. So, you know, if there is an end to taconite mining, my guess is it would look something like that. The next question is also for Marsnick. Have there been any books written specifically about women on the Iron Range, particularly earlier in its history? If not, will Marsnick consider writing such a book in the future? <laughs> I don't know that, that there is one. There are, I mean, like I said, there are a lot of really great writers up on the Iron Range that write, especially um, out of the Gilbert Historical Society. They have, uh, what is the publication, Range Times, or I, well, I don't know why I can't think of it, but I just love the writers there. And so they write about, that's where I got a lot of my information was from there, in Gilbert. What? In Gilbert, they have a little historical society, and it's actually the old jail. 
And so when I wrote the jail scenes for my book, I used that as a reference, that building. It's a, it's a beautiful building. And then when I was there, Kathy Bergquist, who was the historian who was helping me, she says, oh, and would you like to see the IWW charter? It's up there. And so she climbs this little stair and it's just sitting there. It's like this big poster with all of these Iron Rangers, a lot of communists, signing the IWW charter, the advent of the Wobblies, and it is just sitting there against a wall. It, it, was, it, it, it was amazing. So a lot of people have written about it, but I do believe that Iron Range women are an untold story. When people talk about mining, you don't hear about the women, but they're, but they're so important. The men will tell you they're important. They just, they are the fabric of, of that community. So I don't know, maybe I'll write another one. I don't know. <laughs> the next question goes to Manuel. Is it true that the 1964 Taconite Amendment to the state constitution was intended to transfer the benefits of mining from a more local to state level, or to limit the ability of local jurisdictions to tax the mining industry? In general, what I would say is sort of two things. One, as I talk about in chapter two, I guess, is that you know the thing about mining is it's just it's really hard to sort of appropriately tax mining. This is a big challenge that states across the United States, across the whole world, frankly, have had about like, how do you accurately kind of tax this? It's a diminishing resource. So unlike a factory, right, where you sort of look at it, figure out how much it's worth and put a property tax on it, this is a diminishing resource and one that you don't know the full extent of. So it's really hard, just in general, so the state of Minnesota had struggled with appropriate taxation of mining going all the way back to the discovery of mining here. So it sort of, it goes, it ebbs and flows. And already by the teens and 20s, there's a widespread sense that the Iron Range communities were just profligate with the taxes that they were levying on the, on the mine. So there's sort of these attack articles that come out, you know, sort of like uh, Victor Power and Hibbing is held up as the, the Iron Range mayor who's sort of wasting the most tax money. And of course, there's two sides to this story. Right, the mine companies say, well, like, you know, they're just stealing from the mine companies, they're jacking up the taxes and wasting it. The miners and the municipal government say, listen, we're tied to this very fickle one industry. Our entire community is tied to this very fickle industry. So yeah, we're gonna tax it quite heavily and use that as our public relief funds. You know, when the mines put people out, they put people onto public welfare and things like that. But already by the teens or so, you start to see national articles saying, you know, hey, look at how they're, you know, here's this spot in the backwoods that has this beautiful high school. Like, you know, how are they, where are they getting all that money from? The American Mercury, for example, has, this, has an article like that uh, in the 19, 1932, I think. And so already by the 30s or so, there's a sense that this old model of sort of really uh, very high le levels of taxation on the mines are kind of gonna head out the door. You'll already hear the municipal people saying that, that that's no longer uh, kosher on the Iron Range. And then by 1964, you know, it's very complicated because the, yeah, the, the whole nature of the amendment is that all Minnesotans do get to vote on it. So to this question of like, are they giving, is it a giveaway to US Steel or things like that? Even though a lot of people are saying it was, a lot of people said, yeah, maybe it's a giveaway to U.S. Steel, but it only kicks in if they build the plant. So it's kind of a hypothetical win-win situation. It's how many people view it at the time. So yeah, and it does start to spread some of the benefits out to the state as a whole. But conversely, the Iron Range has to then convince the state as a whole to vote for it, that they have some stake in iron ore mining. 
So they actually launched these enormous publicity campaigns all through the 1950s. If you want to go on like YouTube, you can see the shows the Iron, the Iron Mining Association used to run. Uh, they had this long like half an hour special about uh, the Minnesota State Fair and the benefits of iron mining for all Minnesotans. And I, Edward W. Davis would go to like classrooms all around the Twin Cities and show kids how taconite was made, in part because those tax breaks were statewide and depended on statewide voters to keep supporting them. Because you know, a lot of Twin Cities voters or farmers in southern Minnesota might just say, like, why do I care about taconite? And then very specifically, the IRRRB is actually set up in 1941, prior to 1964, when they changed the t tax laws for, this is, we're deep in the weeds, I told you, there's a lot on tax law here. Uh, when they changed the tax laws for taconite, it's set up before that and makes some changes over time. Ken Marsnick discussed the current state of the Iron Range economically and how it compares to the past. Can she touch on the current collective memory of the region's mining heritage and how the region continues to evolve culturally? I think the Iron Range is incredibly impoverished now compared to even 20 years ago. The, the latest layoffs were of course devastating, but they affect not, not just the miners, but every other business that is trying to survive in the towns. So there, there's less money going into businesses that don't seem to be related to mining. Actually, I think the biggest employer is healthcare up, up on the Iron Range right now. It's not mining anymore. So as far as having, having money to spend, I, I think there's less. Less than when I grew up, and there wasn't a lot then. The houses. When I grew up, the people would take care of their lawns. There was such pride. Maybe the houses were small and they looked exactly the same, but there was just this pride in, in the houses. And now people can't afford to paint their houses. And a lot of the men and some of the women are gone. And, I mean, they, they've left whatever, whoever the primary caregiver is and the children to find work, maybe they're in two harbors or wherever they're going, there, there's just, it saddens me deeply. So do they have weekends off if they don't have two jobs? You know, which a lot of people do have two jobs. A lot of people have three jobs. And so one of the advantages that came from the union movement on the Iron Range was that people were able to work one job. And maybe it was shift work. And I, I mean, I, I think if you worked there, you, you can come back and have these memories of how hard the job was. Uh, from people I've talked to, it gets a little easier as you get older, as it should. I, I wish that were the case for teachers. You know, like lighten the load. When we get older, we're tired. And so I, I think when people look back, they'll remember how hard they worked and what a difficult job it was. But they'll also remember that a lot of families were able to survive on one income. And that is simply not the case. Even if you are working in the mines, you don't know when you're going to get laid off. You don't know if you've got six months. You don't know if you've got a year. It's just, you, so you're gonna pick up work when you can pick it up. So as far as being able to enjoy the natural resources, nature, of course, rangers will do that every opportunity that, that they can get. But I think it's difficult 
because the financial situation is dire. And for the heritage piece, I guess I'll just quickly say, what really struck me is sort of the contrast between the way in which the mining industry was portrayed at mid-century, mid-20th century in the 1950s, sort of very modernist, uh, forward-looking, you know, optimistic. If you sort of look at the uh, photos from that era, they're imagining how a, sort of the amazing engineering feats of taconite, that just the scale of it is enormous. And if you haven't ever been able to get up, I know many of you are from there, so this will be no surprise, or maybe people just see it so often they forget to appreciate it. I mean, the scale and complexity of these things is just astonishing, a modern open pit taconite operation. And contrast that sort of optimistic, modern, forward-looking vision with the, the situation today where in many ways, you know, the argument for like why new mining ventures or why, you know, public investment, why do we need to put tariffs on Chinese steel uh, to help out the iron ore mining industry or something like that is that, well, it's our heritage. We've always mined iron ore here. And so it strikes me that that's a, that's a very big shift, right, to say like we're doing this because it's sort of building for the future as opposed to like we've got to keep this thing going because we've always done it. Not that one's inherently good and one's inherently bad, but increasingly I think this argument, heritage, has become sort of the central argument for uh, a sort of continuation of the Iron Range that, that's become really central to how the Iron Range imagines itself, which is fundamentally sort of a backwards-looking vision, or, or tied into the past in a different way than it was previously. And it's not just the Iron Range. I mean, mo many heavy industrial communities in the United States and the Western world do this as well, so uh, it's part of this bigger process. Marsdink noted that many recorded deaths were labeled, somewhat dubiously, as, quote, suicides on company ground. Has anyone attempted to compile a list of these deaths and verify the veracity of the cause of death? I don't know. I don't know. I bet somebody has. There are records. A reading I gave in by Wabak, someone was bringing up this, this issue of, uh, sexual assault during the, during the strike. And I was, I was talking about how it was really difficult for me to get primary sources on that. I had a lot of oral history sources, and there was a woman in there, and she's like, I saw the records, I saw them, and the doctors had to falsify the records. Mm. They had to go back in, and they had to change the reports, and this was common practice, that the mining company would have people go in and change records. And there are people living there right now who know this, whether this is written down and documented. It, I mean, it was corroborated at least five times in this reading. Why people say, yep, I saw that. I remember that. It's just, it, it's intriguing. But yeah, the suicide on company grounds. I mean, I just kept seeing it over and over again when I was researching for people. So it was kind of a fluke for me. Can Manuel touch more upon the environmental impacts of taconite mining, especially as it compares to other types of mining? Yeah, I mean, it really is sort of the hot button issue. And as I tried to lay out there in that little piece that I had, I mean, I think it does, what, what, I guess my take on it, aside from all the stuff that's been written and you can read, you know, go online and read a thousand different perspectives on it, is how much of that echoes a lot of debate that happened around the creation of taconite in the 1950s through the 1960s. So there are some lessons to be learned. That said, I mean, there are some very important differences, as you point out. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, as taconite tailings 
essentially are quite inert versus sulfuric acid. Uh, so, you know, as a historian, I've drawn a lot on some wonderful histories that have been written about the legacies of copper mining in other parts of the United States, uh, like Timothy McCain's book, Mass Destruction, on the history of the Bingham Canyon in Utah and places like that. I think I really encourage people who are interested in this issue and want a historical perspective. But as I, t as I mentioned, I mean, on both sides, one, that the mining, those people who say that, hey, you know, the good times will be back again if we just can open up these new mines, I mean, that wasn't the case for taconite, and it most likely would not be the case for copper nickel either. There's some really interesting moments when they switch over to taconite. You know, they sell it, they're sort of the promoters sell it as saying, we've got unemployment problems. A lot of the older mines, the, the older direct shipping mines are shutting down because they're being undersold by uh, imported mines from South America and places like that. And then when they, and so there's sort of the idea that, you know, the mining companies are going to have to go into the bar and just round up every unemployed guy and put them to work on the taconite mines. And that's, of course, not the case. What they find is they need you know, specialized engineers, people with hard rock mining experience that people just didn't have in the region. So they have to actually import a lot of miners from other places uh, to hire the right people. And, and that's not to say, I mean, the communities benefit from that. They, you know, they show up there, they live there, they have families, they spend money, so it's not a net loss. But a lot of the rhetoric you hear about it just it sort of is real fuzzy about this. And this is always the case. They say, you know, X number of jobs will be created, and they're counting, like, you know, every single person who might push a broom to clean up after the truck is left uh, or something like that, right, is one of those jobs. But conversely, I do think that, you know, sometimes the rhetoric of complete environmental destruction, again, I can't foresee the future, but it didn't prove to be the case on the Iron Range as well, that I take the reserve mining trial there as sort of, I think, the real touch point. You know, there was a sense when there was the asbestos fear that, that the taconite tailings being dumped into Lake Superior look, looked like asbestos, were being pulled into the Duluth water supply, and there was this fear that there was going to be just a mass death event and things like that, and those didn't prove to be true. And, you know, in the long run, there were, you know, the switch to on-land tailings disposal, while not perfect and messy, there were sort of solutions to ameliorate some of those problems. So, again, I'd say also the, the converse of that is, you know, the, the, the most apocalyptic rhetoric of it is unlikely to come true either, you know, and, but that's all sort of very heavily qualified, I think, in this, in, in, in this case. And again, as a historian predicting the future, I don't know, take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> and now we turn back to our authors for closing comments. Um, thank you for reading my book. Also, I just wanted to say that Peter, if you haven't gone to see, gone to the Eastside Freedom Library, he hosts events all the time that are riveting and fascinating and it's amazing to me how many people he knows who are passionate about living a good life the right way. So I, I just want to put a shout out. He's worked with me a, a few times and he's been a, a good supporter. But um, I, I guess I also want to thank Jeff. It's so nice to be with smart people because I'm just a poet. <laughs> I don't know all these facts. It's, it's a great combo. <laughs> Anything you want to say in closing? Uh, just thanks to everyone for coming out. As someone who's who spent a lot of time researching and writing about the Iron Range, but now lives far away, it's just wonderful to be here and have a conversation about it. And, and thanks to everyone who's been able to take a look at the book. And, and thanks, yeah, to Peter. Uh, I, I'm so jealous when I see announcements about all these activities going on. And thanks to Megan. It really is just a, it's, it's a wonderful book, and it's so compelling. And it, it's, for me at least, always a reminder of sort of the gut level 
uh, response to a lot of this history that it's sometimes easy to forget as an ac on the academic side when we get so invested in these things that there's this underlying sort of compelling human dimension. And I really appreciated that about the book. So thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Friendly Connections, the podcast of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes. It takes just a few moments and is helpful in making this podcast more discoverable for your fellow listeners. We also hope you consider supporting the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library and its mission, Stronger Libraries for Stronger Communities. Learn more at thefriends.org. Stay tuned for next week's episode featuring Hunter College professor Donna Haverty-Stack discussing her book, Trotskyists on Trial, Free Speech and Political Persecution Since the Age of FDR. Follow us on Twitter at The Friends and on Facebook at facebook.com slash friends of SPPL for the latest episodes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>